All right, we're going to kick off this next message in this series, I Still Do, with a little bit of a story. Anybody out there familiar with Les Miserables? Anybody? All right, got some culture people in here. Good, all right. So Les Miserables is the famous novel-turned-musical written by a guy named Victor Hugo, and there's a piece of that story that illustrates for us the power of a little thing called mercy. And if you're familiar with the story, you probably know where I'm going already, but don't, don't spoil it for your neighbor. Jean Valjean, one of the main characters in the story, is an ex-con. He's an ex-convict. He spent years in prison for stealing bread so that his sister had something to eat. And then he had a few more years stacked on because he tried to escape prison, and so it just kind of like stacked. And after his release, poor Valjean can't catch a break. You know, he was forced to carry this bright yellow passport since he was an ex-con, and any time he had to show his papers, it was just a big screaming badge that said, I used to be a thief, look at me. So when people realize he's fresh out of prison, they want nothing to do with the guy, right? Valjean was a thief. They didn't want a thief in their inn or in their home or in their business, and so Valjean just could not catch a break. Well, Valjean is finally pitied by a guy named Bishop Muriel. He's a kind man, and he allowed Valjean to stay the night in his home. Now, I know that we've got kids with us in the sanctuary today, so kids, I want to ask you a question. If you were stuck on the street, you didn't have a place to stay, and someone opened their home up to you so you had a place to stay, uh, how would that make you feel, kiddos? What do you think? Do you think you'd be pretty excited about that? Maybe a little bit. They're like, I don't want to say anything because it's a church, and I don't know if I can talk out loud, but <laughs> yeah, I imagine you'd be pretty excited, right? Like, hey, I was on the street, and I now have an opportunity to have a warm bed and a place to stay. Uh, I mean, I was always raised that if someone does that, that you should, like, write them a thank you note or, like, maybe mop the floor or something to say thank you. Like, just good manners, right? Well, Valjean is a pretty bitter guy. He spent years in prison for just trying to keep his family alive, and so he's bitter, and, and in, while he's in this bishop's house, he sees the bishop's silver plates, and he thinks, mm, silver, that's worth a bit of coin. I, I could probably make better use of the silver than the bishop can. So he takes the bishop's silver plates and makes a run for it. He figures he can go and sell those plates and make some money. Well, Valjean's plan is immediately shot down because he's apprehended by the police and forced to return to the bishop's home. And so as he's being dragged to the bishop's home, they're preparing to charge him formally with theft and send him away. In this moment, Valjean is caught red-handed. Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Caught red-handed, you're going away to prison, and because this is his second offense for thievery, he's going away for good. He's going to be locked up for the rest of his life. He's done for. No hope, no second chances. He blew it. And that's it for Jean Valjean, so he thinks. Now imagine being Bishop Muriel in this situation. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you do? You opened your home to this guy. You let him into your house, and he takes your stuff and tries to make a run for it. What do you think you would do? I know if it was me, I'd be thinking, eh, you come into my house and take my stuff after I try to be kind to you? You get what's coming to you. Police, let him have it. Let the guy have it. I might even get my finger in his face and just be like, how dare you? How dare you come into my house and take my stuff after I open it up to you? 
Well, those of you who are familiar with the story, you know what happens next, right? There's none of those things. As the police approach the house and they're going in and they're saying, well, this is Jean Valjean, he's a criminal, and as you know, he took your stuff. And the bishop interrupts them and he says this, ah, there you are, I'm glad to see you. Why, I gave you the candlesticks too, which are silver, and they will fetch you 200 francs. Why did you not take them away with the rest of the plate? So instead of allowing Valjean to be accused of his crime, the bishop covers for him. He permits Valjean not just to take the plates that he stole, but to take the silver candlesticks as well. And the silver candlesticks were probably one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable thing that the bishop owned in his home. So in doing this, Bishop Muriel renders the charges against Valjean completely null and void. If he didn't steal anything, there was no crime, right? He's just completely off the hook. So the police leave. They leave Valjean and the bishop. And in the moments that follow, the bishop encourages Valjean to sell the silver and use the proceeds to become an honest man. That one moment changes the course of Valjean's life and propels him into a path that he would not have been going down if it hadn't have been for that act of mercy. I love what Hugo says about Bishop Muriel. There are men who toil at extracting gold. He toiled at the extraction of pity. Universal misery was his mine. The sadness which reigned everywhere was but an excuse for unfailing kindness. Love each other. He declared this to be complete, desired nothing further, and that was the whole of his doctrine. Wow. High praise, huh? Unfailing kindness. Bishop Muriel lived up to and possibly exceeded his reputation in that moment, didn't he? Mercy is a demonstration of forgiveness when someone ought to receive punishment or to be chastised. It is giving compassion when it is unnatural to do so. It's clear that the bishop got mercy. He understood it. He lived it out. Bishop Muriel blew everyone's minds when he showed mercy to this ex-con thief. He truly demonstrated James's words from James 2.13 when James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He lived that out in that moment. Now, that's a pretty amazing example of mercy, isn't it? That's pretty incredible. But I can tell you about an even greater example of mercy. The God of the universe created us, people, human beings, in his image, and created us to be in a relationship with him. He placed humanity into a beautiful garden, a garden paradise, you know, he also gave people the freedom to choose, to choose whether they would worship God or whether they would choose their own path. Where Valjean only tried to take the bishop's silver, Adam and Eve, in a sense, tried to take God's position to assert his authority in their lives. And in doing so, their relationship with God was completely broken. Just like Adam and Eve, our sins separate us from God. There's this pesky thing about sin our sins can't be repaid or, or recompensed by our good deeds. We can never do enough good to dig ourselves out of the hole that we found ourselves in. There's no amount of good that can make the scales balance because of our sin. And God knew that we couldn't do it. That's where the mercy part comes into this equation. He knew where we would find ourselves even before we committed any sin. He knew it was going to happen even before Adam and Eve knew what they were going to do, even before they were created. God knew what was coming and had a plan for it. 
He knew where we would find ourselves. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to pull us out of that mess. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died in our place, and he rose again, demonstrating that he conquered sin and death. In doing so, he made a way for us where there was no way. That is ultimate mercy. That is the supreme mercy. Romans 6.23 tells the story in just a short little bit. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages, the paycheck for sin is death, physical death, eternal death by being separated from God for eternity. Even just the corruption of God's design and intention for our interactions with other people. But that's not the end. That's not the end of that sentence, is it? God offers us a free gift, the gift of eternal life. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. And that eternal life goes on eternally. Shocker, right? It's in the name. It's eternal life. We'll experience life in a relationship with God as it was intended from the beginning. The neat thing about eternal life is that it's not just eternal. It starts now. It's not just a post-death thing. It's a now thing. It begins on earth right now where God walks with us through the trials and tribulations of life. The Holy Spirit guides us as we interact with others. And that group of others does include our spouse. I didn't forget this is a marriage series, I promise. It's in light of this perfect mercy, this gift from God himself, that we must examine mercy in marriage. Jesus set the mercy standard for us. He's the goal that we're trying to hit. As we live life in marriage and in our other relationships, that's the standard by which we must compare ourselves for mercy. Romans 5, 6 through 8 puts it this way. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, we were in God's house taking his silver, and he still showed us mercy. Jesus doesn't wait, and he didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to come and, and, and have everything figured out. And in the same way, we shouldn't wait for our spouse to have it all together either. Because, spoiler alert, they're, they're not going to get it all together. We're all imperfect, right? We have to be willing to show mercy to our spouse. This is a challenge. Why is it a challenge? You would think it wouldn't be, but it is a challenge for us. I think in addition to all the normal hurdles we experience in human relationships, there's something uniquely revealing and exposing about a marriage relationship. When you're dating, it's possible to put on a really good show, right? You guys remember dating, you know, all the time that would go into, you know, putting makeup on, brushing your hair, uh, you know, putting on a shirt that doesn't smell bad, those kinds of things. You could put your best foot forward and do it on your own terms. You know, I've got a two-hour window, and I've got to have my act together, and I'm going to impress this person. We're going to make that happen, right? But then as you progress in your relationship, your future spouse begins to see you in the not-so-put-together moments, right? They get to see you when you're overtired, when stress is high, when you're hangry, right? When they see how you put the toilet paper back on the roll. Like, what? You barbarian! You put it on backwards, right? When you interact with wait staff and retail employees, they get to see how you do that. 
when you face disappointment, when your plans are ruined, and eventually when they see you with the mask fully off. No more pretenses. When you're married, there's really nowhere to hide. You can't get away. Your spouse may even know you better than they know themselves. And that's, that's an interesting place to be, isn't it? <laughs> now, ideally, in all of that, marriage ought to be a sort of sanctuary. It ought to be a place where you and your spouse can enter in and truly be yourselves. No pretenses, no show, no appearances. And within that sanctuary space, there ought to be a big old fountain of mercy in the middle of that. Mercy that imitates the supreme mercy that we have received from God. In Matthew 18, there's a picture of what this level of mercy looks like. I'm going to be in Matthew 18 and start off at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Yikes. Pretty hefty, isn't it? Peter comes to Jesus at the beginning of this parable, and he asks how many times he should forgive someone who has wronged him. Now, in Jewish custom in that time, forgiving someone three times would have been a demonstration of a forgiving spirit. You know, you forgive them three times, you've done your due diligence, that's, that's well and good. If that person keeps going after three times, then, then you've got every right to, to not show them any more mercy, to just kind of cut it off. So Peter thinks he's being super spiritual when he comes and says, should I forgive him seven times? Ooh, you know, I, I doubled the number, the number of perfection. Look at me, like, I'm going to be super spiritual and, and show Jesus that, you know, I'm, I'm like super merciful. But Jesus sets the bar much higher again in light of what God has done for us. And when he responds, he says not just seven times, but 77 times. And that wasn't intended to give him a specific number of times. That was just to say, you think it's that? Like, just multiply it. It's just innumerable times. And the parable reinforces that. In the parable, the servant owes a debt of 10,000 talents. That sounds like a lot because it is a lot. 
one talent was the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages for the average laborer in that time. So the total debt would have been the equivalent of 200,000 years of labor. That's a lot of lifetimes worth of labor, isn't it? He's not paying that debt back. Now, after he's forgiven from that debt, you would think that the servant would be oozing with mercy after being shown immeasurable mercy, right? He would have said, you know what? No big deal. That's nothing compared to what I've been forgiven. Go in peace. Especially in light of the fact that that 100 denarii debt that, that he was, was looking to, to receive, that was about 20 weeks worth of labor. So after having been forgiven, what was that? 200,000 years worth of debt. He goes and strangles a guy over 20 weeks worth of debt. Well, the servant acted the way that we often do when it comes to mercy. And so he just responds in anger and says, oh, you owe me money. He chokes this servant. He demands his money and tosses him in prison. How ungrateful, how selfish, what an injustice. Well, the other servants are rightfully disturbed by this course of events. So they go and narc on their friend. They go and tell the king and the king is furious. He sends the servant to jail until he can repay this unrepayable debt. So what does that mean? That means he's spending the rest of his life in prison because there's no way that he can pay that debt, right? God is our mercy standard. He demonstrated mercy to us in the face of an insurmountable debt. Like I said earlier, there's nothing that we can do to repay our sins. There's no way those scales can be balanced. That's the example that Christ has called us to follow, that, that he has provided a way to give us mercy. So what does that mean for our marriages? How can I reflect the example of Christ in my marriage? Well, first, when I am sinned against, mercy makes reconciliation my goal. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the beginning, God launched his plan to rescue us. And actually, it kind of even starts before then, because God fully knew what Adam and Eve were going to do before they were even created. He knew what was going to happen, and he already had a plan in place. Not only that, but he went and created us anyway, knowing that sin was going to enter the world, knowing that Adam and Eve were going to mess up and invite sin into, into this beautiful garden that he had put them in. I think that bears a strong resemblance to our marriages. Now, I don't know if you know this. If you're married, you, you probably know your, your spouse isn't perfect, right? You've been married long enough. It doesn't take long. So, you know, if you've only been married a little while, uh, maybe, maybe you haven't learned this lesson yet, but you're going to learn it. Your spouse is not perfect. They, they are imperfect people. We are all sinners, right? And when your spouse sins against you, not if, but when, it's going to happen, okay? Your goal should be reconciliation. That's not our default, that's not, when you go in the preferences of our life, that's not the default setting, right? What is our default when we are sinned against? Our instinctual reaction is to be in the right. We want to express outrage. We want to be indignant. We want to talk about the injustice that we've suffered. We want to keep score so we can justify our response. You know, this is what you did to me, and, and because of that, that's why I'm going to act like this. I'm justified. I, I get to do this because you did this. We need to expect and be fully prepared for these moments where we must show mercy. Remember, God is our mercy standard. How much mercy have you received from Christ? 
Infinite mercy, right? Unending mercy. Because of Jesus, you don't get what you deserve. In the same way, we must be prepared to let go and to forgive. We must seek restoration with the relationship with our spouse when those things happen, when it's needed. Not if, but when it happens. Now, mercy also means that I look at my spouse with compassion. When you look at your spouse, you shouldn't just see their mistakes. We shouldn't continually bring up the 213 different times that they left their socks on the floor or the time that they said something that was hurtful. We shouldn't see all the silly things they do that annoy us, the pet peeves, the the silly little things, right? Uh, Last week, we had a video that featured a couple of uh, married couples in our church, the Man Rosses and also Eric and Joylyn Mello. And uh, one of the things that Eric said, I think he put this so eloquently, he said that he and Joylyn work to keep short accounts. That's huge. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 12, paints a picture for us of how God treats us in the same way. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know how far the east is from the west, right? Like, there's no milepost that says, hey, this is the east, and hey, this is the west, because you just keep going, right? It just keeps circling. So this is far as possible, like infinitely far. Because of Jesus, God doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. You guys know the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, right? We say it at weddings a whole lot because it kind of makes us feel good when we read it. But one of the things it says in verse 1 is that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. If we truly love our spouse and we want to show a fraction of the mercy we've received, we can't keep score. We just shouldn't do it. Mercy also means that I accept my spouse's confession at face value. So again, when, not if, when wrongdoing takes place, the offender is called to confess and the offended is called to forgive. We must confess and seek forgiveness once we realize we've done something wrong. Now, our confessions aren't always perfect, are they? I mean, sometimes it's kind of like, I'm sorry that you feel that way, you know, right? Some of you are laughing because you're like, oh my gosh, like you're reading my mail. (laughs) But our confessions aren't always perfect. And honestly, sometimes they're a little delayed because we don't even realize we messed up. I say this as as a guide, maybe, maybe it's across the board there, but sometimes I don't even realize I've messed up. And sometimes I don't even realize the extent to which I have messed up, (laughs) right? Sometimes our confessions take time to be truly manifest, but we have to be willing to forgive our spouse even if they haven't asked yet, and even in the event that they don't ask, which is really hard. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says this, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Once again, we see that forgiveness is the overflow from one who's been forgiven. If we are truly believers, if we've truly placed our faith and trust in Christ for salvation, if we've truly been forgiven of an insurmountable, unrepayable debt, then we must be ready and willing to forgive at all times, whether it's asked for or not. 
We should open with that. We should be willing to, to go there, even if they haven't gone there yet. Now, here's a really important point. Mercy embraces love, but it does not tolerate evil. God showed us infinite mercy by sending Jesus to die for us. But don't mistake that mercy for forgetfulness or ignorance. God is merciful, but he is also just, right? That's why he had to send Jesus in the first place. There are consequences for sin. God doesn't tolerate evil. And in the same way, we must not tolerate evil. If your spouse is continually going down a path of sin, you need to call it out. That may not feel very merciful, but it is. Now, there is a difference between genuine sorrow over wrongdoing and an attitude of, ah, rats, I got caught. 2 Corinthians 7.10 puts it this way, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, this statement comes from a, a book of the Bible where Paul is calling out the church in Corinth for sin, he does it boldly, and he does it unashamedly. And in doing so, Paul provided an avenue for the church to repent and to avoid going down a path of destruction, to avoid going down a path where they would experience further guilt. Now, in a broken world, I recognize that that sin that we're talking about, it could be something that needs to be addressed. It can also be something that is just truly repulsive in your marriage. It could be a really big deal. Some of you are in a situation or have been in a situation where there may be something like abuse or some kind of destructive behavior in your marriage. Mercy is quick to forgive, but mercy does not enable future sin, further sin. One of the most merciful things that you can do in that situation is to get help. One of the most merciful things you can do in that situation may be contacting authorities and, and reporting something, exposing that evil. That doesn't really feel merciful talking about it, but you've got to understand that abuse and destructive behaviors are often manifested in a cycle. And that cycle is extremely difficult to break out of. If someone has been raised in a cycle of abuse, it is extremely difficult to get out of it. And your act of mercy, reporting something or calling it out, may be what needs to happen to break out of that cycle at last. It may be generations of something happening, and you may be the one that breaks that cycle. Dave Harvey is the author who we've been drawing a lot of inspiration from for this series, and he puts it this way. One thing is certain. A loving spouse never helps an abusive personality by appeasing them. In fact, some forms of entrenched selfishness feed off the very mercy and kindness you so selfishly display. Merciful love doesn't appease such behavior. It challenges the delusion that props it up. Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. The appetites of crocodiles are never truly satisfied. If you're living with a croc, name the danger for what it is and call for help. So if you are in that situation, don't take mercy as, as saying, I need to be a punching bag, okay? Mercy is going to expose that evil for what it is, and mercy is going to stop that from happening. And it's going to try and rescue that person from being in a situation where they are going down a path of sin and destruction. Lastly, mercy means that I'll be patient with my spouse's fallenness. You know, Romans 3.23 reminds us that we are all sinners, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And ultimately, marriage is a union of two sinners. We talked earlier how we're not perfect, right? It's even worse than that. We're all sinners. We all do wrong. And that marriage is a union of two people who are imperfect and do wrong. We also have quirks, and we have habits, and we have annoying things that we do. We make silly mistakes. Sometimes we make not-so-silly mistakes. Sometimes we do things that are egregious. But in everything, we must be patient with one another. We've got to be slow to say, I told you so, even when it's deserved, because sometimes it's deserved. We've got to be slow to chastise. We have to be slow to nag. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We have moments of idleness. We have moments of faint-heartedness, of weakness. And in those moments, we need our spouse to encourage us. We need to encourage our spouse when they're in those moments. Help each other. Be patient with each other. You know, mercy is something I can't say that I have perfected. You know, uh, sometimes people think to get up and to preach about something, that you've got to be like some kind of super hyper paragon of awesomeness in that subject. Um, you know, I, I'm not there yet, but I will say that in 18 years of marriage, uh, Miriam and I have learned how to put mercy into practice to some extent. In the day-to-day, we try to bless each other in the little things. We try to, as the, as the mellows put it, keep short accounts. Uh, one thing that we talk about a lot is, is the fact that uh, you can't attribute to ignorance or forgetfulness or stress something that, that you think is malice. You know, just because they left their underwear in the corner doesn't mean they did it to spite you. It probably was an innocent mistake and a habit that they need help breaking out of. And so we can't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to ignorance or forgetfulness or stress. Pick up the extra when the other person is overwhelmed. If I come home and it's been a really long day, uh, dinner's not even like a twinkle in someone's eye yet, that's where I can step in and be a part of it. Now, even if you're not a chef, uh, Domino's is a call away, right? Like, you can fix that problem and and be part of the solution there. I think for me and and for for us in our marriage, uh, there was a moment pretty early on where we got mercy for real. At least I understood it at that point. Now, those of you who are familiar with our story, you know that uh, Miriam grew up here in in Falmouth on the Cape, and um, the the two of us were married here at OBC in 2004. She attended the church as a teenager and was a part of it. And uh, in 2004, we graduated college. Two weeks later, got married. And two weeks later, I was starting my first job at a church in in Southern California, 3,000 miles away from here. I can't recommend doing it that way necessarily. That was a lot to, to kind of like get hit with at once, but that's just how the cards fell for us. And uh, I began uh, serving in a local church, my first time serving as a youth pastor uh, in, in full-time capacity. And uh, to make a long story short, I experienced something that, that happens so frequently that there's actually a name for it in the pastoral community, and there's actually support groups and ministries that are designed around this one thing happening. They call it a forced resignation. It's basically being fired in a way that makes it look like you quit. You know, I always thought a resignation was something that I I did because I I felt like it, but, um, you know, I sat down, and after 14 months of being on the job, uh, sat down with my senior pastor, and he said, you know, this is going to be a tough meeting because I'm going to ask for your resignation. And I was like, is that how this works? I'm not, I'm not, I'm a little confused here. I didn't see it coming at all. I was completely blindsided. 
And, you know, the process of asking for that happened is the next day I was going to get on a plane and, and go away to a conference, and I was going to be gone for the weekend, and they knew that. And so when they brought this before the church, I was not going to be there to, to be able to say anything. Um, you know, my teenagers in the youth group thought that I was just kind of abandoning them, and I'd been there, kind of just couldn't cut it, I suppose. And again, there was just nothing that I could do uh, to, to have any say into that at all. And uh, you know, it was honestly, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was, it was a really, really difficult place to be. And uh, after I sat down in that meeting and, and was given that information, and you know, I got in the car and, and I started to drive home, and there was an awful lot going through my head at that time. You know, I, I had to go home and, and, and talk to my wife with you know, this prospect of no longer having a job on the table. And uh, we had moved 3,000 miles away from home to the middle of the Mojave Desert, where it's mm, kind of like this, but less green. Um, and uh, you know, we, we were in a place where, where it was regularly 110, 120 degrees, and the air expanding in your car, if you forgot to roll down your window a little bit, would crack your windshield, so you had to crack your windows a little bit. So far cry from Cape Cod, okay? Um, definitely not, uh, not a cozy place to be if it's, if it's not something that you want for sure. And um, you know, so, we, I walked into the house, sat down on the couch, and, and Miriam, obviously, you know, if you know your, your spouse, something was up. And so I sat down and, and cried a lot. Uh, some of it was just sadness. Some of it was relief from all of the pressure buildup, knowing that this thing was coming, and uh, you know, knowing that, that I'd just been handed this, this you know, list of faults. I, I was given a multi-page document of all the little piddly things I had done and why they were letting me go and, you know, just real, real encouraging stuff. And, um, you know, I sat there, we processed through it, she reads through the thing, and she, she looked at me and she said, all right, what do we do? We're a team. How do we, how do we navigate this? So that was the moment that I got mercy. That was the moment that I understood that mercy was more than, than just you know, some hypothetical thing that we talk about on Sunday morning. Mercy was something that, that I understood in that moment when my wife told me, we're, we're a team and we're going to do this together. It wasn't her fault. Uh, you know, she was the one that got dragged 3,000 miles away from home, but she was willing to walk through this experience together as a unit and, and to come out the other side of it. That was the moment that our family got mercy. And as I conclude the service this morning, I've got to ask you, have you and your spouse gotten mercy? Or if you're not married, do you get mercy? And I'm going to ask that in two ways. The first is, have you received mercy from God? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, for the ultimate gift of mercy? You know, I could give you all the advice in the world about being married, all the practical advice I could dream up. I could sit down and do hours of marital counseling, but you're going to have a hard time showing mercy to your spouse if you have not received it first. It's like trying to pour something out of an empty cup. Not to mention the greater problem of separation from God. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, that's an even greater problem. So if you've never become a believer, you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, that's the first step. Now, if you are a believer, how are you and your spouse doing in this area of mercy? Do you keep a short account with each other? Do you seek reconciliation when there's a problem? Can you show mercy at the level that you have been shown mercy from God? Do you show compassion to one another? 
When there's a moment of confession of a wrong, do you receive it with love and mercy, or do you hold it over their head? Do you try and appease sin in the life of your marriage, or do you demonstrate mercy by exposing evil? Do you show patience with your spouse's imperfections and weaknesses? That's not easy, is it? That's pretty hard, but it's a good practice to start today. If you haven't been there, let's all together start doing this today. Father, you have shown us ultimate mercy. While we were in your house taking your silver, you gave us the candlesticks. While we were sinners, while we spat in your face and sinned against you, you gave us the gift of your son. Thank you for your unending mercy. Lord, forgive us for the times where we fail to show mercy. So often we can be just like that ungrateful servant. We seek restitution despite everything that we've been forgiven. And we do it to the people that we love. Lord, please forgive us. I pray that we would learn to follow your example with our spouses and the other people around us as well. Help us to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. Help us to be an example of mercy to those around us. May our marriages and our families and our OBC church family be a beacon of mercy. May we demonstrate that mercy triumphs over judgment.